Thank you, Clay. Thanks, musicians. So we are in the life of Abram. Let me pray as we um, consider this text this morning. Our Father, we come to you again with, uh, with great need, and we ask that you would uh, unleash the power of your word by your spirit, that you would somehow speak through me uh, to communicate what uh, you would have us here this morning. We pray that your spirit would be actively um, at work in our midst uh, as this service continues, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine that your future self, uh, yourself like at the very end of your life, that you have a conversation with that self about maybe regrets, things you would have done differently, how you would have lived your life. Wouldn't that be helpful to talk to yourself at the very end of your life to kind of learn like, don't do this or do this. I regret that we, I didn't do this more. Well, I've got good news because you don't have to do that because I know what your future self would would tell you. It turns out there's actually like a lot of literature that's been written on end-of-life regrets. Hospice care workers, end-of-life care folks have observed these these themes uh, among the dying, things that they regret, ways that they would have lived their life differently if they could go back and do it again. And here's what they say. They wish that... People at the end of their life consistently wish that they would have loved their family more, that they would have spent more time with their family, that they would have taken more risks and not been afraid of failure, that they would have been more, that they would have been more present with their friends and with their family, that they would have spent less time being worrying and being fearful about stuff that doesn't really matter. Things that are outside of your control. Don't get bent out of shape or fearful or anxious about things that are outside of your control. They wish that they would have worked less and loved others more. So if you want to kind of boil all of those comments down, here's how you do it. People at the end of their life wish that they would have lived more generously and lived with more courage that they would have been less fearful about things. So generosity and courage, right? Being generous with your love, generous with your time, generous with your presence, being courageous in the face of risks, challenges, difficulties. I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? Don't we all want to be more generous and more courageous? Well, last week we looked at Abram, and he was none of those things last week. In fact, he was the opposite He was stingy, not generous, and selfish, and he was fearful, and he worried, right? He was fearful of the famine, and so he left Egypt. And then he was fearful of the Egyptians, and so he made this plan to sell his wife off to the Egyptians, which he did, operating out of fear and selfishness. It was a major slip-up for Abram, and in our passage this morning, we got a 180, Abram, who was walking by sight and operating out of fear and selfishness, is now walking by faith. And what what it's doing in his life is it's producing generosity, it's producing courage in his life. He's leaning into God. Look at verse 3. 
He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place, and actually that word place there, better translated, to the sacred site where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so all of a sudden, Abram, who was walking in fear and selfishness in the previous section in Egypt, if you remember, now he's calling upon the name of the Lord. He's back to the altar. And at the end of the passage, verse 18, look at what it says. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So Abram's back at it, right? Building altars, calling upon the name of the Lord. We're getting all these clues that Abram is back walking in faithfulness, trusting in God's promises. He took things into his own hands back in the last section in the early chapter, part of chapter 12 in Egypt. And he was walking in unbelief. He was walking by sight and it propped up his ego and his fear and his selfishness. And now he's walking in faith. And what we're going to see flowing out, fruits of that faith are two things. Generosity and courage. The two very things that people wish that they had more of at the end of their life. Generosity and courage. And we see it in the midst of a problem. And it's kind of the opposite problem of what we had last week. Remember what the problem was last week? Famine. Shortage. Now the problem is abundance. Look at verse 5 and following. And Lot, who went with them, with, or went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. You see the problem, right? It's not a famine, it's glut, it's plenty. Their, their livestock and their herds and flocks are so great that they've got a, a, a problem, a conflict between them. Did you know that having too much of something can cause problems? Did you know that the, the more goats you got, the more problems you got in life? And that's what's happening. Ab Abram and Lot, they have these herds and it's creating this conflict. Between the two, the two families, between Lot, Abram's uh, servants and Lot's servants. And on top of that, it says the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in, in the land. And so they, they occupy the land and they're probably sort of managing Abram and Lot's access to grazing fields and watering holes. And so that's pre creating an added pressure uh, upon their flocks. How are they going to kind of manage this situation? One thing I want you to notice here is sin creates problems. It creates problems in famine, in, in times of, of need, right? It creates problems in times of abundance. You may have, maybe early in your marriage, you economically, things were tight. You're sort of scrounging around and you thought, man, if we could just kind of reach this income bracket, if we could just get this house. And you get those things and you know what? New problems arise. How do you manage it? How do you steward it well? Tension. See, sin creates problems in times of need. It creates problems in times of abundance. And that's what Abram is, is facing here. 
So let's look at verse 8 and see how Abram acts generously in this situation. And remarkably so. Look at verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Now I want you to notice, look at how he addresses Lot. What does he say? We are kinsmen, right? Remember who Lot, Lot is Abram's nephew. And so the relationship is more like father, son, uncle, nephew. Abram's the superior. Lot has joined Abram on this journey. Lot is a tag along here. Lot got his herds from Abram. Abram gave him his herds from Egypt. So, so Abram's being generous there. But I want you to notice how he's how Abram is addressing Lot in the most equitable, generous way possible. He's calling him his brother. He's not patting Lot on the head and he said, hey now, son, or hey, little fella, let me, let me tell you how this is going to go. No, he says, we're, we're brothers. We're kinsmen. We're brothers. It's not condescending, but it's generous. I'm above you relationally. You, you, you are to honor me in the shame, honor culture, but I'm going, to, I'm going to address you in the most equitable way I can. Brother. Now, what, what about you? When, when, when the strife rises, when tensions rise between your friends, between your spouse, are you able to address one another with honor and respect generously in those moments, those tense moments? We have every reason to do that because here's the thing that's compelling Abram again. Again, he's walking by faith. He's trusting God and he understands for reasons maybe beyond his grasp, Lot is is with Abram. That Abram has found himself in a position where this person is in his life. Lot. And as we're going to see, we're going to read more about Lot. He's not, he's, he's not the, most, the greatest character in the scriptures. Um, and we'll get to that. But Knowing what we do, he's probably a difficult guy to be with in life. And Abram understands that. And even though he may have reason to to not talk respectfully to Lot, he does. He's generous. And in the same way, God has placed us in these stations. We may have difficulty respecting or honoring our spouse. We may have difficulty respecting or honoring our boss. But if we're walking by faith and we're understanding that God has placed us in these positions in his providence for our good... It makes us generous to how we treat our bosses and our spouses and our children and our friends. To how we address them. Romans chapter 12 verse 10, Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Abram is being generous. Now note note this in the previous passage. Remember when they were walking by sight in Egypt? Abram's not addressing her this way, but the text is calling her. Remember what, what Sarai is called in those verses when they're in Egypt and she's being traded like property? She's the woman. The woman. It's not her name. Right? It sort of takes dignity away. It's dignity extracting. And here is Abram infusing dignity into his nephew Lot, my brother. But his generosity gets even more lavish because look at what he does in verse 9. Abram says, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. Okay, we've got this problem with 
how we're using the resources, the land, it's, it's become a big problem. So let's separate. And I'm going to give you first pick. You take the land that you like, whatever land you want. Just look as far, look to the left, look to the right. Take whichever land you want. It's yours. Dibs, lot. And if you go one way, I'll go the other. And we see, verse 10, Lot goes to where his eyes are drawn. He's, Lot walks by sight, right? He walks by sight. Look at what it says, verse 10. He lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt that they just came from. In the direction of Zoar, and this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, so Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot, again, he's walking by sight, he lifts up his eyes, and he looks around, and he says, oh, there's lushness there, there's water, there's cities. And it looks so pleasing to his eyes. And he, and he goes there. But it's an ominous turn for Lot. And we get close to that. Right? Because we see the wickedness of Sodom. And we're going to come back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, eventually we're going to see what this does to Lot and his life and his family. It's going to cause lots of problems. Um, and also it says that he journeyed east. Every time somebody moves east, it's a movement away from God. When Adam and Eve left the garden, they went east of the garden. Away from God. When Cain was, was, became a sojourner, he went east to the land of Nod. East is a movement away from God here in this, in this book of Genesis. And here's one thing to notice. And Abram gets this. This is important. It is better to be with God in the wilderness than without God in paradise. It's better to be with God in the desert than without God in paradise. And that's where Lot is finding himself. Because while it's lush, it's like the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's how it's described. It's like the Garden of Eden, but God's not there. The people don't call upon the name of the Lord. And so it is, as we're going to see eventually, a kind of hell for Lot and his, his, his family. Remember, remember Bruce Waltke on wickedness and righteousness? Remember what wickedness is? Uh, disadvantaging others for the advantage of ourselves. And that's what Lot is doing. Abram's do, acting righteously, right? He's disadvantaging himself. Lot, take whatever you want, whatever, wherever you want to go, you go there. He's disadvantaging himself for Lot's advantage. That's righteousness. Lot's doing the reverse. He's acting wickedly. And he's saying, well, okay, I'll... I'll take the land that looks great. It's so generous what Abram is doing. He has the authority. He has the right. Lot is his tag along, but he defers. And this is what walking by faith does. It makes us generous in how we address others and how we act towards others. How can Abe be generous in this moment? Because he's trusting God's promises. Remember what God's promises are? Land. That God would give Abram this land. That it, would, that it would come from God. And God's generosity to Abram, 
that I'm going to make you a, a great nation, and this will be your land, and you'll have offspring. Abram, living out of faith in those promises, is then able to act generously himself. So my question is, what about you? Are you, are you generous? Are you generous in your heart? Are you generous with your finances, with your gifts and abilities? Are you generous with your time? Parents, are you infusing in your children a spirit of generosity? Paul Tripp tells the story of one of his children when they were young. Uh, woke up really early one morning, went to the playroom where all the toys were, and, and he walked in, and, all, and one of his sons at a young age had every toy in the house gathered together, and he had his arms around them, and he said, they were all mine first today. Right? Because he learned the rule, right? Did you, I had it first. Well, okay, there, there you have it. As if, as if having it first gives you the right to, to own it, right? He was, he was, he was working the, out the logic of that. And he said, I had them all first. But here's the problem with that. That toy is a gift. It's a gift from mom and dad. And if mom and dad didn't have the wealth, the toy wouldn't exist. So we, 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 we teach our children that we're generous because God has been generous to us in giving us these toys and giving us these things and giving us these um, gifts that we have. And you may be thinking, well, I can give a little bit to the church, a little bit of time, a little bit of, of my energies, a little bit of uh, my, my finances. I can give a little bit of those things to the people I love. But you know what? I earned it. So it's kind of my call. Not so fast. Um, there's a lot of people in this world working hard. You know, Tim, Tim Keller has said that you know, our great-great-great-grandparents, our ancestors, worked very hard, probably harder than we work today. I would, I would almost guarantee you they worked harder than we work today. And they weren't wealthy. <laughs> they, they did not have much wealth and comfort and the things that we enjoy, right? We have, we, yes, we work hard, but we work with gifts that God gave us. There are other people right now working harder than we are, but were it not for a, a, an inequity in gifts, they don't have maybe as much as we have. We work hard with the gifts that God gave us, right? You may think, well, no, I, I went to college and I developed some skills at college. Yeah, but... Much of the world doesn't have access to the education that you got, and you didn't do anything to earn it. You weren't in preschool at age five saying, I really want to go to this school, I really want to be in K-12. In fact, you probably resisted it most of your life. These things are gifts that come to us. And to say that, like, to say, I did it, I earned these things, I earned this, I, I did it, You're, it's a naive illusion to think that you did this all on your own, that you accrued the wealth or the time or whatever it is that you have, that you did it on your own. It's a naive illusion and it makes, it makes you selfish and it, makes, it causes you to overestimate yourself and to overappraise yourself and your abilities. See, faith in God frees us from that illusion. Faith in God says, God has given me gifts. He has given me a culture and parents and finances that have helped funded my education, that have helped me 
do these things. He's given me the gifts to work hard. There's a series of networks and connections that I have that have helped me find the jobs that I've, that I've found. And if you take away the gifts, you take away the education, you take away the fact that you live on the most wealthy pl- uh, country on planet Earth and the most wealthy country in the history of the planet, you take away all of those things and you may not have those gifts. You, you wouldn't have those gifts that you have. They're gifts, and therefore we live, we live out of God's grace to us, and so we live generously with the gifts that we have. Abram's keenly aware that his wealth is rooted in God's grace. The wealth of the flocks, the fact that all the land will be his anyway, it's, it's, it's God's promise, it's God's grace and his gift to him, and so he's able to act generously to his nephew Lot. But he's not just being generous, he's also being courageous, and that's our second point. He's living courageously. So in, in, in Egypt, Lot was very fearful. And here he's displaying courage. And I want you to notice it in verse 8. You see, Abram approaches Lot. You know, trouble brewing at the workplace. You know there's some conflict. You know there's strife. What do you do? Trouble in the marriage. You know there's strife. You know there's conflict. What do you do? It's very tempting to say, just kind of let this ride out. Let's just see how this works itself. Maybe this will get better with time. Maybe if I don't do anything. Fear, right? We we don't want to tackle the the, the conflict, tackle the challenge, address it. It's it's, It's difficult. It's mentally exhausting. And Abram is sitting here. He sees the strife and he knows what it's doing. And so he acts courageously in confronting the problem that he knows is there. He's not sticking his head in the sand to avoid it, but he's confronting Lot on it. He's, he's trying to get ahead of the thing. He realizes these problems don't go away. And so he takes courage and he confronts Lot, but he does so, as we already said, generously. Which, by the way, that takes a lot of courage too. What's going to happen to me if Lot takes the best land? What kind of explaining will I have to do to Sarai and company when I get back to my tribe? When Lot's group has left for the land that looks great and we're going the other direction. You know, Abram's already been explaining a lot to his uh, spouse. Now he's explained this one. It takes courage to do that, to walk by faith. When we trust God's care and provision, it gives us the courage to face conflict because we understand that we live in a fallen world and conflict is part and parcel of that fact, but also to confront the challenge with uh, generously by taking generous action because we also know that God is pouring out his generosity to the world to establish his new kingdom and we're living out of that. See, Abram is, is, is operating out of a cascade of generosity, right? A cascade of generosity. The generosity of God towards Abram is allowing Abram to be generous to Lot. It's like a fountain. But here's the key. You've got to realize that the cascade of generosity doesn't, its, it's fountainhead is not you. Its source is not you. If you think you're the source of the fountain of generosity, you will grow cynical and bitter it's rooted in God and his gracious action towards us. 
So he's being courageous in this situation. Now, I said at the beginning that the problem was abundance, too, too much herds and flocks. Um, that's, that is the case, but there's also kind of another way to look at it. There is scarcity in this problem, just like there was in the previous section, in the famine. And the scarcity is, la- is shortage of resources, right? That the land can't support the flocks and the herds, and that's where the conflict arose. And scarcity, look, here's the thing. If you have scarcity in your life, it it almost never leads to generosity and courage. It leads to fear and stinginess. Almost always. You have a time scarcity. You 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 have a meeting with your boss. And a time scarcity because you're running late for that meeting. And you're fearful because you don't like the consequences that can come for being late to a meeting. And you also grow selfish because... The kids are dragging their feet to get ready for school or, or the, the person, uh, you know, you're, you're at an intersection and you're to kind of race through it and ignore the person that has the right of way because, man, you're acting selfishly, right? Time scarcity translates to fear and to selfishness. Maybe you're mentally exhausted. You have, a, you have a mental scarcity, brain power scarcity. It's at the end of the day and you've had a hard day at work and you've been just pouring your mind out to try to figure, solve these problems at work, and then you get home and your teenage child has algebra homework, and you're not, you're, you can't do algebra, much less at this point. How do you respond to that mental scarcity? Do you say, oh yes, I would love to, I'm not very good at algebra, I'm going to do my best, I would love to spend my time working on this. Is that, are you generous? Or are you stingy? Why did you have to bring it to me at this point in the night? Scarcity produces selfishness and stinginess. But, but listen to what, but here's, here's how you break that, break that trap. That scarcity trap that produces selfishness and fear, here's how you break it. Listen to what Kevin Van Hooser says. Belief in divine providence casts out the fear of scarcity. When we're believing in divine providence, we're believing in God's care and provision for his people, it casts out the fear of scarcity. Abram is trusting God's goodness. He's trusting his blessing. He's trusting the promises of God. And what's happening is he's being the the kind of person that we all want to be. He's being generous. He's being courageous. He's being the kind of person that the, the self at the end of your life wishes you would be like now. Courageous and generous. James chapter 3 verses 17 through 18 says... But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Abram is living out these verses here. He's being generous. He's being reasonable with Lot. He's being more than reasonable with Lot. He's seeking to make peace. He's disadvantaging himself for the advantage of Lot. And here's the promise. Here's the promise of righteousness. There is a a great harvest coming to those who live and walk in faith, whose lives are marked by generosity and courage. There's a harvest. And look look at verses 14 and following. We see that harvest right here. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And again, God reiterates his promise to Abram. Land. But here's the thing. He does so in the most sweeping terms yet. He's not explained the promises of land to Abram in such grandiose scope, right? What feels like loss to Abram is followed by a, a big gain in his life. So there you see it, right next to each other. Last week's passage, this week's passage, they're, they're meant to be kind of a pair to see, see together. Abram walking in, in famine with fear, not trusting God, acting selfishly and fearfully. Abram walking, trusting in God in another kind of famine, a, a shortage of land, and he's acting courageously. He's acting generously. Don't you want to be like faithful Abram? Don't you want to be generous and courageous? You do. That's what yourself at the end of your life is going to tell you you want to be. Are those things are courageous and, and generous. So how do you do it? How do you do it? Tim Keller has talked about the uh, philanthropic principle. So philanthropists who give millions and millions of dollars to these wonderful causes. How do they do that? They do it because they have an even bigger reservoir of, of, of billions of dollars to draw from and give hundreds of millions of dollars to give millions of dollars to these organizations. And so it is with generosity. The way in which we are generous is that we must be drawing from an even d- deeper uh, well reservoir of generosity and love that is found in Christ. Because you can't, you can't give what you don't have, right? Abram here has faith in God's goodness and generosity. But here's the thing. We have, we have our eyes of faith set on an even clearer sight of God's generosity. Abram looked forward to Christ and the promise of Christ. We look back and we see it with high def, in high def, right? We see it with great clarity. The work of Christ. We look back to Jesus who gave himself up to the will of his kinsmen, his brothers. And you know what they did? They didn't just take land from him. They took his life. They pinned him to a cross. But there was something else happening. God was at work. And what looked like a great tragedy was God working out his salvation for us. That as Christ hung there on on the cross, the very people that put him there were receiving the means by which they might access God. We ourselves were receiving it. And what seemed like a loss was actually gained for us and for Christ. Because what happened following that death is that God raised him from the dead and seated and exalted him to the right hand of the Father where he has inherited a redeemed creation. All the universe is his, redeemed, as a result of what seemed like loss. It flowed, the harvest was gained. Like, we can't be generous and courageous unless we are trusting God, who is both powerful and good. Unless you doubt that goodness, look, look no further than the cross. Lean into Jesus. Because when we do, we see his care, which makes us courageous in the face of difficulty and challenge. And we also see the lavishness of his love, which makes us more generous. 
Let's pray. Our Father, we consider Abram walking by faith here, and it reminds us of, uh, or I guess it shows us what we, what we want to be. We want to be more generous. We want to be more courageous um, in the face of difficulty and challenges and conflict. We ask that you would give us a clearer, even more palpable vision of Christ and his death for us on the cross so that we might walk in faith and be generous and be courageous. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.